Hola, welcome back to another fresh episode of Karishma Connect where I got talking to Mr. Prantik Majumdar. Now, Prantik is another top 40 under 40 from Singapore and he on LinkedIn reads as proud father, digital transformation catalyst, managing director at Densu Group in Singapore, taking care of their customer experience sector. He's also an angel and venture investor. Now he talks about public policy, entrepreneurship, digital marketing, and I've got him on Karishma Connect talking about all of that and a lot more about investing. So go check out the interview. There's a lot in there for you. And until next time, keep connecting. I'll see you soon. It's a pleasure to host you and I'm really looking forward to sharing these questions with you. So thank you for making time. And uh, let's begin. Yes. So before, you know, anybody who comes on the show, I just tell them that you tell your journey best. So if you could kind of, in a nutshell, I know it's been a very long one. I keep scrolling on LinkedIn when I'm seeing your page. But can you tell me in a nutshell what's it been like? Yep, it's been a good uh, 39 year journey. So in a nutshell, essentially, I grew up in uh, India. I'm a Bengali, but I was brought up in Pune and my family moved to Indonesia thereafter. So very fortunate that uh, I got a chance to live both in India as well as in Indonesia uh, between the age of 13 and 18. And that was fabulous. I mean, we had a very wonderful time in Indonesia. And it's my first, it was my first experience, you know, in a different culture. And, you know, I moved from a boys' school to a, a co-ed school, a multicultural school. Uh, and Indonesia, you know, is lovely. Uh, so that was fantastic. And then for the last 20 years, I've been in Singapore. And the 20 years in Singapore can be broken into maybe three or four blocks. So the first four years in university at NUS, where I pursued a major in computer engineering and a minor in technopreneurship, which kind of gave me the first feel of what entrepreneurship in the domain of technology could be. So very grateful to NUS uh, for that all-rounded development, for the fact that we had lots of ECAs, for the fact that we were allowed to attend classes outside of our major, which I think is a, uh, is a huge thing. Uh, I think because, you know, you make choices or you are kind of compelled to make certain choices. But once you're in uni, I think the four years should be all about exploration and experimentation of any sort. Uh, I think fixing into something uh, at that early stage, I don't think it's wise. So I'm happy Singapore gave me that opportunity. And I joined the Singapore government thereafter for the next four years. I worked for uh, International Enterprise, which is now merged into Enterprise Singapore. So my first three and a half years was a fantastic experience into how uh, a government body should idly run. I think what I love about that system is they take young students, fresh grads, and throw them into the deep. So six months into my role, you know, I had to lead industry missions to other countries. I had to work with other uh, diplomats and delegates. It's quite overwhelming, but I think that's that's the right phase to kind of you know shake things up. And I think the breadth of exposure was fantastic. Uh, and thereafter, I worked for a couple of SMEs, small medium enterprises in the field of brand consulting and digital marketing. Uh, so it gave me a good perspective in the non-governmental, non-public sector side. I always wanted to taste what does it feel like to be selling to marketing because it's only when you start selling and you know keep getting rejected for two years, uh, you kind of uh, you kind of get grounded. You kind of get a good experience. Uh, and then uh, I would say entrepreneurship. The next ten years was all about happy marketer. Again, entrepreneurship happened accidentally to me thanks to my good friend and uh, the original founder of Happy Marketer, Rachit. He was the guy who post NUS was very sure that he was going to start on his own. And he laid the foundation, a lot of hard work. Uh, but he pulled me in as a co-founder in 2011. 
and yeah the last 10 years has been uh, nothing short of magical in terms of just growing something from a small little seed which you know organically uh, was nurtured into uh, something quite meaningful and our idea was to keep running it and uh, but it so happens you know in life you really can't have a fixed plan uh, around 2018 we got an acquisition offer uh, which we uh, pursued over time and uh, feb 2019 is when we sold happy marketer to uh, merkel a american brand under densu uh, which is a japanese conglomerate and uh, yeah the last 3 years so we have a we have an earnout period and the last 3 years i have been at densu leading uh, one of their three service lines the customer experience management service line uh, in the singapore market uh, and you know so that's my 20 years uh, uh, in singapore and well uh, in parallel to my day job uh you know with happy marketer and densu i guess my other two passion areas is sports uh so i love playing cricket as well as i love uh you know looking at the business of sports so that's a big passion area and the other is looking at startups angel investments and advisory so i read a digital transformation catalyst on your linkedin profile and i wanted to ask you that what exactly do you think it takes to be a catalyst because that's a very unique word that you use there in today's times so catalyst for me you know i think again the genesis probably the first time i would have heard that is in a probably a chemistry textbook right and the meaning probably remains the same is in an agent of change and uh, what does it really take i think firstly it it takes a couple of things it it takes uh, time effort and an attitude to listen uh, and understand the current scenario so if you look at any strategy project or you know change at the end of the day is you need to know where you are you need to know where you want to be and then figure out a path from you know getting from a to b so i think step one is to really understand where is an organization where is a person where is an economy depending on the environment you're working in and then you need to have a very good understanding of the macro situation a company operates so i would say having that strategic overview of you know where you are where you want to be and the path i think definitely helps but i think at the end of the day to catalyze a change it takes a lot of advocacy it takes a lot of talking it takes a lot of discussion it takes a lot of pushing back it takes a lot of people management uh, people process technology if you had to explain uh, venture capitalist i know you have a little boy so if you had to explain venture capitalism to him how would you kind of break it down in the most simplest ways yeah i like it when you ask this you know I, in fact i think every explanation should be either to a 5 year old or to a or or to a 90 year old uh because it compels you to i suppose take out the jargon so i think if i was to explain you know it's about what i would tell him is that you know assuming you're working on a on a project and you're working you're trying to make a toy or you you want to make a big let's say a lego toy uh, that is quite fascinated about uh you know you would need a you would need the map you would need the lego pieces if it's really gigantic maybe you will need some people to help you build it uh and to do so you would need uh, some sort of support right you would need people you would need money uh you would need uh, space maybe depending how big is your lego block lego uh, structure that you're making so to do all of that uh well you could uh, if you have all of that if you're blessed with all of that that's fantastic then you don't need someone to you know externally to come and help you but in many cases uh you may need someone externally to come and help you buy those things help and give you that space 
help and you know show you that hey you know what you want to big you know make this big let's say marina bay lego structure uh, but if someone has done that in the past you know having someone on uh, on in your team will help you because they can shorten the time frame so it's really about venture capital to me is uh, a of course money to help you buy those things hire people all of that but it's also about someone who can accelerate your journey help you do something that you want to achieve fast how how then is angel investing different from how are those two terms different yeah so i think you know at a very simplistic level usually uh, angel investing is uh, i think two fundamental differences is that the vcs are obviously a larger company and they come in a bit later when things are a bit more stable things have scaled you have shown that a company has generated revenue or profits perhaps uh, so you know when you have gone from uh, step 1 to maybe step 3 in your 10 step journey maybe the vcs start looking at you because their check sizes are larger uh, they are a larger body angels typically are individuals uh, who are basically coming in even earlier probably at step 0 or step 1 they believe in the person they believe in the idea they believe in the proof of concept so usually angels come in when there is little revenue or no revenue and you know so they're believing in the whole category that you want to work in right so there's a lot of faith a lot of gamble if you will there's a lot of gut feeling and conviction of course there are aberrations where now vcs are coming in much earlier uh, there are aberrations where there's a whole trend of solo vc where there are just individual vcs who just happen to you know be a one man or a one woman team they put their own money they also collect money from other friends other companies and they manage it alone but relatively speaking the risk is relatively lower at the vc stage compared to the angel stage as a uh, vc or an angel investor how do you kind of assess the risk the few areas that i look at is i would start with the category right so today you know there are diamond dozen fintech edtech companies right but i would need to first do an assessment of my conviction on the category itself right because an investor is probably looking at 10 pitches right now at any point in time so he or she needs to have a fundamental understanding and conviction on a category and within those big bubbles what subsets am i looking at and how large is the category now if your research says that the category is only uh, you know 10 million dollars uh, well nothing wrong but as a vc because you're expect because of the high risk you're taking you want to look at you know something that can give you 5x or 10x return Yeah. so if the bubble is small and if there is more competition so your addressable bubble is very small so first things first i think you want to be looking at a sizable opportunity in the next you know 7 to 10 years right it's a it's uh, it's a burgeoning field uh, it's you know it's a growing bubble uh, it's not too competitive uh, so i think that's one right which is at a very macro level then i would look at the founders right mm. you can be a good founder but are you the right fit founder for this category you know you could be a great founder for fintech but if i'm looking at health tech does that necessarily mean you will be a good uh, founder for uh, health tech maybe maybe not and i'm not saying that only trained doctors can be you know good health tech founders in fact research probably shows otherwise and hence there's a lot of gut assessment there's a lot of reference check that needs to happen of course if you know these founders from the past nothing like it right there's an element of trust as well yeah. then of course you would look at because you know at that early stage especially angel vc maybe you the company has still been around for you know 3 4 years so you have seen some traction but even at the angel stage i do look at some customer feedback so i have never invested personally at a powerpoint level i would at least look at 
that you know at least one or two customers are willing to give them a shot uh, that they're at least willing to give it a pilot shot right uh, so even if they make 100000 revenue i would i would be happy if it's one or two clients who have given them two or three projects that means they like to work with these people you know they trust what they are doing they have tasted some success so some quality of recurring revenue is good it's a good to have right they look at who are the next layer uh, are there stock options to incentivize them because many a times founders can be very greedy and they say no i'm not going to give uh, stock options to my employees which can then mean hey you know why should your employees work for you and not go and work for facebook google tiktok the earlier the bet uh the more subjective some of these assessments i'm talking to my dad or my you know my dad's dad then it's always going to be like you start your own business and there's nobody else kind of putting money into it or something it's about tum apna paisa banao and then dalo that kind very very good question you know and i think uh, up front i want to say that i have as an individual i've only run the business the dhanda like your dad and your granddad would talk about so happy marketer was a services business no external investor uh, right so it's in that mold and i think to youngsters or doesn't matter youngsters oldsters i think to me at the end of the day a business adhanda is a business whether it's venture backed bank backed your savings backed your mummy daddy backed it's ultimately operates with that same simple formula of profit equal to revenue minus cost right and it's important to bear this in mind for two reasons one is yes today there is and i'll talk about it but there is this whole trend of you know every venture needs to be venture backed and startups and multiple rounds of funding and exit but to me i have the same amount of respect if not more for the salon next door the baker next door or the steel import exporter businessman you know as in india a businessman or a businesswoman the one the way we would have grown up uh, listening to because he or she is trading he or she is making stuff and selling and nothing like cash right to me at the end of the day if you are making something or the service the digital marketing service i'm providing you know i'm i'm providing something and the customer is paying so what i genuinely believe is there is no better investment than your customer's money because that's a proof that whatever that you are delivering there is actual value someone's opening the wallet and giving you cash or you know digital cash or bitcoin whatever it's there's a value exchange right uh so i think that's first things first so not that every businessman businesswoman needs to have a venture backed idea right you can very well run a business a successful business and make profit because if you're making profit consistent sustainable recurring profit i think you're successful right uh, you don't need to be uh, in livement and economic times with the fact that i raised i become a unicorn i mean that's one category but probably bulk of india's businessmen businesswomen are still you know india has only about close to let's say 90 plus unicorns probably i don't know maybe thousands of other companies valued at 100 million and you know maybe 10000 at 10 million which is great they're all on a journey but absolutely categorically want to put it that if you're running a successful business where customers are paying for your services on time and you have profit to show i think that's fantastic because nothing like because in that particular business most cases you own the control you own the equity you or your one or two business partners or family right next you look at uh you know uh, at least in india i know very few companies i mean the ideal situation is you know you should be able to run that dhanda with 100% control why give why give shares to others if you can do it on your own right and i'll come to as to why you need to give shares and bring on vcs or others but you look at a company called zerodha in india which is now you know number 1 or number 2 stock broking app in india uh they have built a massive unicorn level business without raising funds 
Now, isn't that an ideal position to be? You run the business, it's profitable, it's scaling, and you own 100%, right? That's a nirvana stage. But if you look at the startup tech world, what happens is uh, you you may want the third-party investments from angels, VCs, etc. for two, three fundamental reasons. You know, starting may you don't have the money, as simple as that, right? So you need to, uh, you can either borrow from the bank or borrow from friends, or you can say, you know what, I don't want to borrow, but hey, friends and family, I want the first $200,000, or I want the first one crore uh, from your support if you're willing to put as equity, right? See, so if they like you, if they trust you, if they uh, like what you're doing, they'll be taking a risk knowing that this money will never come back or may never come back, right? Uh, so you're taking the money because you don't have it, uh, or because it's available at very, uh, you know, not as a loan, but, you know, as equity, you're, you may be willing to say, okay, I'll keep, uh, rather than owning 100% of a $1 million business, I rather own, uh, you know, 50% of a $100 million business. So you're taking that money yeah. quickly because it's available to scale fast, right? So all of these tech businesses, you need the money because you don't have it. You need the money because you need to invest for the first three to four years to build something, get good people, and you want to scale, right? Because you want to kill competition. You want to, you know, uh, grow really fast, right? Because of the dhanda category that you were talking about, you know, whether it's today's people or uh, the dads or the granddads, you'll see they were always running the business forever, for life. Yeah. Right. And the other day you would run the dhanda and you would add new products, new shops, right? This is a nice steady, uh, not, I mean, there's always ups and downs, but it's a lifelong thing. But here people are looking at, hey, you know what, there is an opportunity in the next decade. If I don't scale up fast, and if I do the steady approach, there'll be too much competition. But right. because there is money available in the market, why don't I take that upfront? Why don't I give 20% to someone else called this VC? Why don't I get their network, their expertise, take the money fast, build something fast, grow something fast, kill competition fast, and get to the, you know, a sizable position, a dominating position fast, right? So it's really about that scale, acquiring skill set, scaling fast, uh, you know, taking care of competition as early as possible, because you essentially want to compress the time scale, right? And the fact that you may not have that much money on your own to risk it all. Uh, so that's the reason. But mind you, you could be doing that but it's you know there is no free lunch at some point the investors will turn around and say you know the zomatos paytms etc which i've listed at some point market will or people will say boss it's time to show profit because you can't be running a loss forever what these guys are essentially doing taking money because it's available at a decent rate and saying you know what i'll be loss for, loss making for the first 5 10 years but at some point you've got to be so you've got to be unit positive at some point you've got to have a path to profitability at some point mm-hmm. uh because otherwise it's not going to work, right? Because the, there's only that much time that the money, VC money will keep coming in. You're racing against time, right? Uh, so that's a huge difference compared to the you know, other kind of businesses. So you look at Indian family-owned businesses, the Tatas, the Heroes, you know, public listed. These are massively pop, uh, profitable, massively large companies. Just that they're there to build a legacy. The game is quite different, right? But right. I would urge everyone, whether you're on this camp or that camp, uh, A, equal amount of respect because anyone starting a business, it's not easy. It takes a lot of time, conviction, courage, effort. And B, you know, there has to be uh, adherence to that formula of revenue minus cost equal to profit. Uh, 
Uh, so either you're making profit or you're going to have a path to that profitability. There's a lot of buzz happening around NFTs and crypto and all of that. What do you think is that one, uh, you know, 39 years you've been in this, you've done so much of investing in everything. What do you think is that one tip that stays across the board for any form of new, uh, you know, form of investing that's coming through? Yeah, so it doesn't, you know, you're not the only one. I just to be honest, I think most people probably don't know what uh, NFT is and what you know crypto is and all of that. And to be honest, I myself have not invested in that space. Neither do I have an NFT yet. I'm exploring. I'm reading. It's fascinating. It's a bit gimmicky, yet it's exciting. And it reminds you, you know, anything that is new you know, goes through that adoption curve where initially it looks funny, frivolous, but so far what I've gathered is that. <clears throat> The underlying technology of blockchain, I think that has a lot of merit, uh, depending on the use case, you know, uh, use case in the government sector, in the banking sector, in the identification uh, sector, cybersecurity sector. I think there's a lot of use cases of the blockchain concept, right? Uh, crypto is one use case. So I think fundamentally, I'm a believer in the blockchain, which is a, again, you know, going back to the five-year-old description, if there is a khata or a ledger, uh, where you keep track of you know what's coming in what's going out a blockchain is basically a distributed public ledger which keeps a track of you know let's say in a bank or a financial system who gets how much who pays how much so it's publicly available right so and it's it's hard or virtually impossible to tamper with so it takes care of transparency it takes care of visibility it takes care of you know permanency so to speak uh, so that technology i think is very very useful uh, and I really hope we get, for example, one of the companies that I invested, they use blockchain for, you know, university certificates and transcripts. Now, many of us who have been to universities, uh, whether in India, Singapore, wherever, you know, you might find yourself in a, for example, it happened to me, someone needed my certificate and honestly, I couldn't find it. And I realized, oh my God, the process to go back to my university, file an application, pay money, physically go etc. could take me three months to get it. But imagine if all universities, and of course, there's a whole case of uh, certificate uh, forgery, right? People make fake certificates. But if it's on the blockchain, every university issues uh, the degree or the transcript through the blockchain. So it's, it's publicly recorded. So it can be retrieved anytime. It can't be forged uh, because it's digitally signed. Uh, so, you know, they're working on that. So it's, it's a very interesting use case. Yes. Now coming to NFTs and uh, it's it's very interesting. All I know right now is a few of my designers, they are uh, being able to sell their artwork for a decent price. They've been able to trade, buy and sell other people's artwork for a decent price. And they're making, you know, a decent side income. So I'm assured at least that the fact that their money can go in and come out and they can actually make an income, that's assuring, right? Uh, what I'm also finding, again, I'm not into art, but I'm finding like I was speaking to a company yesterday in India, they're trying to basically create this blockchain sort of mechanism to help artists in India to, un to you know, answer questions like, okay, what is a fair value for this art? Because again, I what I never get is why is one art sold at $1 versus some someone buys a painting for 10 million, right? Yeah. It's probably subjective, It's uh, you know, uh, but they try to help artists say, hey, you know what, in your category or your genre of painting, it should be $288 as opposed to $20, right? So they're trying to bring symmetry. Then they're trying to create a marketplace to say, hey, artists, why don't you you know, put your actual art for sale, but also why don't you put an NFT version of your art for sale? Because there is uh, there are potential buyers who want to own the 
uh, NFT rights for your painting? Now, it's a hard question. Uh, you know, whenever I talk to people, there's a good legit question about why would someone want to buy a digital art? Like if I can't touch it, if I can't put it, my answer is same. Why would I buy a physical art and of anything and put it on the wall, right? Ultimately, maybe, I mean, again, maybe people who understand art, there is a better description or answer. But for me, many people buy art for status, right? Oh, I bought so-and-so painting. It's the same thing as, oh, I'm wearing Sabdesachi. I mean, sure, it looks good, but I'm saying it's a very interesting debate. Is a Sabdesachi worth five lakhs versus the same Lenga, the tailor making it for, I don't know, right, uh, 50,000. Uh, so art, <laughs> anything subjective is interesting. All I know is, there is, there is enough demand for it, there's enough curiosity for it, and it's something that I will continue tracking. I'm generally not someone who would dismiss new technology saying, hey, it's rubbish, this is a fad. I think it's important to, uh, you know, I think it's probably Aristotle who says that sometimes the best reaction is not to react, but to observe, right? You yeah. don't have to say, wow, this is epic, oh, wow, or this is pathetic, right? You can just observe, see what the market does, talk to people, learn. So. NFT, that's my, my positioning. I am still an observer. I haven't bought, I haven't understood it completely yet. But blockchain as a fundamental technology, I think I'm a big believer in. Perfect. On that note, thank you so much once again. That was very interesting. <laughs> oh, thank you, Karishma. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. And thanks for you know just uh, doing what you're doing. It's, it's always good to hear uh, different perspectives from people from different walks of life. So thank you and uh, wish you all the best. Thank you, most well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, then do give us a follow and tune into our next episode as well. If you wish to watch the videos on YouTube, you can check them out at Karishma Connect and give us a follow on Instagram at Karishma Vallade. Thank you again.